good. Uh, I'm, I'm, no matter what, I'm going to give a five-minute Dharma talk at least here. <laughs> if, I, if, if these questions don't... Are these all from the same person? <laughs> the handwriting's all the same, I see. <laughs> there's, okay, there's one person that's different. But, no, there's two. All right. All right, I'm putting that person away aside because obviously they're really annoying. So, okay. <laughs> I'll get them later. I'm, I apologize to whoever you are. That was rude. I, I don't know sometimes. How to hold or react when untruths are per- perpetrated. Example, the telephone game of someone's, something said being distorted results in hurtful statements i.e. wise speech slash anonymity. How to hold or react What? Oh, God. You had to ask questions like that. I'm trying to think if I can weasel out of this one. Um, you asked for it. I know, but I should have read it before I actually read it out loud. Jeez, uh, my glasses aren't working. I can't read this. Um, so it seems like it's kind of about uh, rumors or gossip or um, or just outright lies. And I don't know if this is talking about like personal. Uh, I mean, I you know I think on the. Uh, it's it's too, I don't know. Does the person who asked that want to clarify what exactly you're kind of asking about? I know maybe you don't want to because that's why you wrote it down. Uh, okay, because I don't I don't know how to respond to that. What are some tools for developing compassion, both inner and outer? Um, I would start really by reflecting on the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. And you want to just let people... Oh, I just put them on the table. People okay, they're on the table. Yeah. People can have them. They Thank you. Thank you so much, Nancy. Uh, I think that, you know, if we... Uh, and this is something that for me really came about through the deeper states of meditation. So I'm talking about being on retreat, because in those situations, after a few days of silence, you know, some of the barriers fall down, because I would say that what keeps us from developing compassion is our closed heart, and our sense, which is kind of fear, and fear, Um, maybe there are a few resentments, traumas, you know, all the stuff that builds up over life. And um, so when we do more intensive practice, there's a, partly what happens is a kind of regression. And you just kind of, that stuff kind of falls away to an extent and you kind of open up. And it, it can be very intense, it can be scary, it can be even overwhelming. But hopefully if it's if you have a, a good teacher and you're in a safe environment and you take it slow, things open up. And as, as your mind is getting quieter and there's less I 
kind of going on and more of a sense of just being, then you start to see your own suffering as just part of the suffering that all beings experience. That is to say, you're not, your feeling of kind of being just part of something uh, starts to allow you then to see uh, how painful it is for anybody to be alive. And, and so you're not, it, it, it's kind of, again, it's not so personal anymore. It's not like, oh, me and them. It's just kind of like, oh, wow. And, and there's just this opening that kind of happens. So to say some tools, you know, intensive practice for me is really the tool. I, I, I'm not sure that, I, you know, I can say these words, uh, which to me, you know, the, the key in terms of ideas that I convey to you is to see that your own suffering is not different from anyone else's suffering. And that everyone wants to be happy. And as the Buddha said, everyone wants to be happy, but they're doing the exact opposite of what will bring happiness. They're trying to achieve happiness through acquiring things or experiences, by getting what they want. And that the way to happiness is letting go, not getting. So when we see that everybody is going around this planet chasing after the same thing and doing it, just creating suffering for themselves instead, there's a natural kind of, ah, it's sad, you know? And to know, wow, I do the same thing. And hopefully if I'm awake, when I'm awake, I'm less likely to do it. Because spiritual awakenings, like everything, are impermanent. (laughs) I can fall asleep. When I'm awake, I see that, and I don't get so caught up in my own suffering or in judging myself for my suffering. I see, wow, this is hard. And I think having that view of yourself is, as I think is maybe being implied here, Uh, when it says tools for developing compassion both inner and outer, it's probably harder for many of us to feel compassion for ourselves. So we need to also step away from ourselves in some kind of intentional way and look on ourselves as just another being rather than me. And when we see ourselves as just another being, like all the other beings who are suffering, then we can see, oh, wow, that was hard, that was painful. Being a teenager was hard. Being uh, betrayed by that person was painful. Uh, being sick. You know, all the things that we go through. Uh, being an addict. Trying to get through, into recovery. Um, um, so. All right. Yeah. Okay. I think this is too difficult. Twelve steps are called a program of action. Through meditation, they are a program of inaction. 
Uh, actually, I gave a talk about this topic uh, just uh, the other day. And uh, I was talking about how meditation, the first thing we learn to do with meditation is to do nothing and, and how important that is. Um, that uh, to be able to be with the impulses that arise. It was the question, who, who said last week about stimulus and response? Was that you? Well, I, I took that and I ran with that for several days. <laughs> I gave a couple of Dharma talks based on that and it got better and better. Sunday night it was just like, it was awesome. <laughs> Uh, I wish I could get it back. Once it, you know, there's kind of an arc for me. You know, I kind of build up, I get it, and then it kind of fades out. Unfortunately, it wasn't recorded. But um, that's what doing nothing is about. It's that about the being able to be there as there's a stimulus and not responding. And that that's a skill that we're trying to learn in meditation, is to just have and that, that we're forced to learn we don't might not even know we're learning it you know, that we're sitting here and we're not every time we want to do something we're not doing it um, but that is an action so working with the sponsor how does the meditator convey to his or her sponsor, how each step is working through meditation. Well, depends on the sponsor. If the sponsor is open-minded, which, by the way, is one of the principles of recovery, so we would hope the sponsor would be open-minded, um, I think you have to see for yourself how you work the steps through meditation. Uh, did I talk about this? This is one of my uh, stump speeches. Um, using meditation to work the steps. When I sit down to meditate, very quickly I realize that I'm powerless over my mind and body. Thoughts come that I don't want to come. I can't make them go away. I have a relationship to them, and I can cultivate letting go, but I'm not in control in the same way that I can change my relationship to alcohol. And when we say I'm powerless over alcohol, it doesn't mean that alcohol just gets into my system without me participating. <laughs> you know? So it's the same thing with thoughts. I'm, I'm powerless over they, they arise. Now, what I do with them, then I have choices if I'm aware. My body, it does stuff that I don't want it to do. Sometimes they're very awkward times, but besides that, just generally, it ages, it gets hungry, it gets tired, it has pain. I'm powerless over my mind and body, step one. Okay? And that's, to me, that experience expands on the idea that I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol. It's like I'm not just powerless over those things. I, and it helps me then to stay with my program because the things that uh, trigger for me addictive behavior are not just 
the specific drugs and alcohol. They're the things that happen in my mind and body. So when I change this relationship to them, when I see that I'm powerless over them, then I'm kind of like, oh, that's happening now, and I'm able to just be with it and let it go. Step one. Step two. Came to believe the power greater than self restores sanity. So, uh, oh boy, how do I do that one? Um, My mind has been clearer at other times in my life. I know that. That's just a side thought. Um, For me, the, the practice is an expression of faith. It's an expression that I believe that by sitting doing nothing, there's some benefit to it. And obviously that there's more than just sitting doing nothing. By cultivating awareness, I'm going to become, that there's the potential for transformation. Um, So I think stepping into a meditation practice is an expression of step two. Step three, turning my will in my life over. My practice is turning my will in my life over. Very much to me. It's... It's uh, living the principle of surrender. It is taking time to not be in control, which, which is what step three is largely about. It's acceptance. So when I practice meditation, there's a lot of, a lot of it is focused on just accepting what is happening, turning it over. Step four, I find that and I could, with, it correlates with step 10, uh, when I meditate, a lot of the thoughts that come up are my inventory. And I certainly see my meditation practice as a kind of inventory, like a present moment inventory practice. And sometimes my whole history comes up. This is something they talk about on the longer retreats here, that people go through a life review when they're on retreat. If you just sit down with a pen and paper and try to write about your life, yeah, stuff will come up, you'll remember stuff. But if you sit down and do nothing for a while and are just quiet, other stuff will come up. <laughs> you know, that you haven't really kind of, rem- ooh, write that one. You know, it kind of, you're creating the space for it to arise. Step five, I don't think, unless you're psychic, you can do step five through meditation. Maybe someone has a solution to that one. Step six and seven, which to me are about letting go, are again very much what our practice is about. Uh, so um, that's what I'm learning to do when I watch my thoughts, when I watch my feelings, um, when I watch my sensations, all my sense experience. I'm just letting go moment by moment. Um, so y- you get the idea. I mean, I don't know that I need to go through every s- single step. Have you ever worked the steps around the eleventh step? I don't know what that means. Would anyone like to uh, guess what that means? I mean, I don't know what it means. Uh, Working the steps is actually a phrase that... uh, is difficult to define. Okay. 
Oh, there are many different meditation techniques. Is it good to mix up meditation or stick with one? Um, mm -hmm. First of all, that's a trick question. Because it's asking, is it good? Uh, it's bad. You're bad. Yeah, if you're bad if you do that. Yeah. Um, I think it can, first of all, I think it's useful to learn a variety of techniques uh, and uh, see which ones you're drawn to. And then I think it's important to make one practice be your central technique for at least several years. At the same time, it can be useful to have kind of ancillary, 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 I don't know why I came up with that word, techniques. Uh, so for instance, what I will typically do in a period of meditation is at the end, the last few minutes, I might do some loving kindness practice. Or some people will do start their sitting with a concentration practice for a while, like just counting the breaths for 10 minutes just to kind of settle and then go into a Vipassana practice. So what's important isn't whether you use multiple practices or not, but whether you are doing it intentionally and what is your intention. So if you're in the middle of a sitting and you're going, oh, I'm sick of this, I think I'll do some metta. Not helpful. Because that's kind of like, you know, when you're, you keep, every time you get in a relationship, you break up with them after six months because it starts to get difficult. Right. It starts to get real. So any practice, no matter how much you like it at first, will become difficult at some point. And if we're going to develop a practice, we need to stay with it through the ups and downs and see what's on the other side, if there is something on the other side or if it's just a cliff. <laughs> Oh, that was a good answer. Thank you. Have I ever worked the steps around the 11th step? <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. Some, some, um, all right. So I, I am going to um, give you my 12-step talk. 12th step. Talk. What a relief. Um, so, there are three elements to step 12, as far as I can determine. First one is spiritual awakening, and we've talked about that, so we kind of covered that. That, um, you know, my sponsor, my erstwhile sponsor, um, it's a good word. It took me a really long time to figure out what it meant. It means, means he's not my sponsor anymore. Um, when he would read the steps at a meeting, he read from chapter 5 in the big book, he would say, having had 
a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And I'm sure others have heard people read that. And obviously, emphasizing, uh, well, I'm not really sure if that meant that it was the only one. Or, anyway, uh, it, uh, to me, it's really trying to drive home the idea that whether you know it or not, if you've worked these steps, something has changed. Yeah. And, and I think it's really, really important, if I haven't said this enough, for us to really embrace the ways that we've grown and changed and embrace the positive things that we can see in ourselves and, and really take responsibility. If we're going to take responsibility for our inventory, we also need to take responsibility for our positive qualities and for the ways that we are spiritually awake. And that doesn't mean that we're bragging or that we're egotistical, and it doesn't mean that we're saying that we're better than, or than anyone else. It just means that we're acknowledging that there have been these experiences, these, these changes. I think, in fact, for, to me, in, if we're going to be happy, happy, joyous, and free, I think it's important to be able to, at least somewhere in your heart, say to yourself, yeah, good job, you know, or just appreciate, yeah, I've done that, that's good. I think it's one of the reasons why we count the years and people get, like, you know, chips and all that, just to remind people, you know, you've done a good thing. Nonetheless, what's interesting about this step, uh, and what I think is really even more important about this step, is that the connection between the first part and the second part of the step. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of this, these steps, we didn't retire or float away on a cloud or sit under the Bodhi tree and enjoy our, the bliss of our enlightenment. No, because our spiritual awakening was a recognition that we are not separate from others. We tried to carry this message to others. In other words, we tried to be of service. We realized that pursuing my own spiritual awakening is not an end. That that uh, is the same experience the Buddha had, this wonderful story of him sitting under the Bodhi tree, having this enlightenment experience, and really saying, his first thought was, this is so unbelievable and so advanced that nobody's going to get it. And if I go around and try to teach people it's just going to be annoying because they're going to be like, huh, what do you mean? I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? That's stupid. You know? and th- I mean, that's, uh, the suttas don't put it in those, that language, but you can get that that's what he's saying. And so what the Buddha says happened <laughs> is he says a, this Brahma god came and spoke to him and said, hold on. There are a few with just a little dust in their eyes. Beautiful expression. And so, and he realized, that's right. 
there were my teachers and my, and my friends, there are some people who will get it. So, you know, what, what that means in, in terms of the Buddhist path and story, I'm not sure, although it could point to a certain kind of arrogance on his part, but you're not supposed to say bad things about the Buddha, so I wouldn't say that, but it could. Um, but nonetheless, so what he did was he spent the rest of his life, 45 years, he had experienced enlightenment at 35, he lived to be 80, spent 45 years walking around northern India, never riding on animals, walking around. And each day, it says that he would wake up and, and with his divine eye, this you know, psychic power, he would kind of find, see who was ready to hear his teachings within a day's walk. And then he would, you know, he would go and get his alms, get his breakfast, and then he would go and walk, and, unless he was at one of his monasteries. But, I mean, he spent the rest of his life just trying to help other people. So what are you going to do with your spiritual awakening? You know, put it under the mattress? As Jack Cornfield says, there's no enlightened retirement. There's also no recovered retirement. Um, so I love that connection. I think it really, it's really helpful for us. And it, it embodies the, what any spiritual path is about, definitely embodies what recovery is about, certainly embodies what Buddhism is about. And then I think of the last phrase, practice these principles in all our affairs, as the thing that closes all the loopholes. In case you thought there was like some like little out on this, no, this is, this is not about going to your meetings or going to your meditation group or acting spiritual or you know, going to India. This is about all your affairs. <laughs> this is about your life. You know, that's why what's so beautiful about doing a silent retreat here is that you're encouraged to be mindful from the moment you wake up until the moment you fall asleep. And in fact, Upandita, who is a Burmese master, he suggests that if you're on a retreat, you notice whether you fall asleep on your in-breath or your out-breath, and then notice whether you wake up on your in-breath or your out-breath. Now, I've never gotten the fall asleep, but I have gotten the wake up a couple times. kind of blew my mind. I mean, I, it was, I was intending to do it, you know, I really wanted to do it. woke up and I was like, I was an in-breath! Wow! <laughs> I didn't say that, but... <laughs> Um, but, you know, brush your teeth, you know, walk down the hall, go to the bathroom, do your chopping your vegetables, meditating, walking, listening to the Dharma talk, all your affairs. You practice mindfulness in all your affairs. Um, So, I think for a last thing, I will read off this list. This is a little... um, list of the principles of the program that somebody handed me when I walked into a meeting in Delaware a few years ago. And why I like that is because when it says that in the steps, it's, there's nothing specific that it appears to be referring to. Uh, there's no list. You can uh, kind of extrapolate from the, from the writings, but, um, you know, there's no place where you can officially look up the principles. I think it's something we all have to kind of infer. So on this list it says, step one, principle, honesty. 
a good one. That's a legitimate. I think you could list, you know, a, a half a dozen others. Certainly, I would include surrender. Um, uh, step two, hope. Trust, you might say. Um, step three, faith. I, I think there's more to step three than faith, but I think that's, that's part of it. I think step three is also, as I like to say, about commitment. Uh, making the decision to to live this way. Step four, courage. It's interesting, which I think that's like the courage to do this. It is a little scary. Uh, but I think you could also plug honesty into step four quite easily. Uh, but it does say fearless moral inventory, so I guess that's... <laughs> step five, integrity. So, all right. Step six, willingness. That's... My, mine is intention, so willingness and intention are very similar. Step seven, humility. Which obviously, that's the one that uh, Bill Wilson emphasizes in the 12 and 12. I, uh, that always seems to me like a limited view of that step. For me, step seven is about letting go. Uh, but the idea, but to let go, we probably have to be humble, so it goes hand in hand. Number eight, step eight, brotherly love. Kind of cute. Um, this was Delaware. It's close to Philadelphia, so I guess. I don't know. Um, step nine, justice. It's mm. interesting. Isn't it? So that kind of idea of making amends as a form of, of justice. Uh, step ten, perseverance. I'll definitely sign on for that one. I think perseverance very important. Uh, step eleven, spiritual awareness. And step 12, service. That's a nice list. I think we could all make our own lists, and I think it, uh, that's another uh, practice, that if I were um, uh, taking somebody through the steps, I would probably say, make your own list of the, what are the principles of the program for you. Um, I'm going to put that in my workbook. Um, And that, you know, that kind of brings me around to where I started tonight, which is um, the idea that we have to make our practice and our program our own. It's not something that we can get from someone else. Nobody can give it to us. For someone else to tell us what the principles of the program are isn't ultimately that useful. I think we need to reflect on these things for ourselves. Um, so I really hope that these weeks have been uh, helpful for you guys uh, on your path, they're, that they're uh, something that will help you to move to the next stage of your recovery and your practice. Uh, it's not meant to be a, um, a place that you move into permanently, but rather a way station on your path, as I would say are all aspects, all um, places we pass through. Um, but I really, you know, the, this, this small group that's here tonight, you know, these are the faces that I've seen just about every week, I think. Uh, 
haven't been taking role, but uh, there's a lot of very familiar faces. And I really appreciate you showing up. Um, again, I, to me, that's, that's the key. You know, it's not about something I say. Uh, it's about you showing up. And, um, you know, that... Um, I think that's what one day at a time means. Uh, you don't try to get it all at once. You don't try to get ahead of, ahead of it. And you don't quit just because there's a tough day or month or year. You just keep going. So let's close. We are blessed to live in a time when recovery is possible. And not many years ago, the idea of healing or recovering from addiction was almost impossible to comprehend. It was almost unknown. We are also blessed to be living in a time when the teachings of the Buddha, which are over 2,500 years old, are easily and widely available to us. Even on the other side of the world from where the Buddha lived and taught. Somewhat miraculous, really. And again, not many years ago, this would not have been the case. Well, one of the teachings in Buddhism is to realize the tremendous good fortune of your karma, to be exposed to the Dharma, and in our case, to be exposed to the Twelve Steps. to not only be exposed to them, but to be drawn to them, to have the opportunity to practice the capacity, both mental and physical, economic, to take the time to practice. could say that we actually have a responsibility to make the most of this opportunity. But if that's an alienating concept to you, perhaps to just focus more on gratitude, appreciation. Ultimately, though, however we practice, we aren't practicing just for ourselves.
even if we don't believe that we are interconnected through our consciousness, which many people do believe, we can certainly see that how we live, how we relate to others, what we bring to our lives, has a direct effect on the lives of many other people. So as we cultivate our practice and our program, as we open our hearts, deepen our presence, we are of service and we are spreading the Dharma. We are sharing the merit of our efforts. May all beings be free from the suffering of addiction. May all beings realize their interconnectedness. May all beings live skillfully, kindly, wisely. May all beings be happy, joyous, and free. Again, thank you all for coming for these weeks. I, I don't know if I mentioned on any of the homeworks about the Buddhist Recovery Network, but if you look at BuddhistRecovery.org, there is a list of Buddhist Recovery meetings, um, all the ones that we know of in the, in the world. And uh, you can look under the USA and California to find ones if you're interested in, in that. And um, I hope you will uh, continue to come and uh, spend time with me, come on retreat with me. In the fall, I teach a retreat uh, down uh, near Santa Cruz, Vajrapani. And uh, that's a great opportunity to deepen your practice uh, in a retreat setting. So hopefully we will meet again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.